This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Mukul Pandya, uh, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Milan Vaishnav, who is a senior fellow in the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, his primary research focus is on the political economy of India. Uh, we will speak with him today about his book, When Crime Pays, uh, Money and Muscle in Indian Politics. And joining us in this conversation is Devesh Kapoor. Uh, he's a professor of political science here at Penn and also the director of the Center for Advanced Study of India. Uh, Devesh and Milan are co-editors uh, with Pratap Bhanumetta of the forthcoming book, Rethinking Public Institutions in India. Uh, Milan and Devesh, thank you so much for joining us at Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Milan, I wonder if we could you know, start off by, uh, uh, with you. Uh, what inspired you to write this book? Uh, it's a great question, uh, Mukul, and thanks for having me, and thanks to Devesh for joining. I was in India in the summer of 2008, which uh, at that point the government of India was led by the Congress Party, and they faced a vote of no confidence uh, actually over the controversial U.S.-India civil nuclear deal. And the government was so nervous that it might actually fail this vote and would have to call fresh elections, that 24 hours before the vote was to take place, they temporarily released six members of parliament who were either convicted or indicted of committing murder to come out of jail, come to parliament, cast a vote, and then get carted back off to jail. And I, I remember watching these scenes unfold, you know, on the television news. And I thought, you know, well, this is rather interesting. I mean, you know, quite naively, are there are there many criminals in Indian politics? Because this didn't really merit much attention. You know, it was a sort of blip. And the more digging I did, the sort of murkier it became. It seemed that, you know, this was common knowledge. Everyone sort of acknowledged that, yes, there was a sort of marriage between crime and politics. But uh, I kept looking for, you know, where's the book that will just explain to me, you know, what's going on, you know, so I could get back to what I'd come to India to do, uh, which was to find a, a topic to research for my dissertation. And by the end of the summer, I'd concluded that, you know, I was going to have to probably write that book if I wanted the answer. Devish, uh, what would you... So, Milan, uh, can you just give us a sense of the scope of this? Uh, we know that there are from your book that there are a uh, fair number or lots of people with criminal charges, both in national parliament and in state assemblies. What's the sort of scope of this issue or challenge or problem? So in 2003, the Supreme Court of India ruled that anybody who stands for elected office in India at the time of submitting their nomination papers must also submit a judicial affidavit in which they detail their criminal records and their financial details. And so we now have a window uh, into this universe of crime and politics. And so what those data show is that as of 2014, which was the last time India held a general election, 34% of members of parliament face ongoing criminal cases which means that there are judicial proceedings underway to prosecute cases against these MPs. 
21%, so roughly one in five MPs, face uh, what's known as a serious case, which is something that if there were actually to be a conviction, would merit hard jail time. So leave aside sort of what we might consider to be minor transgressions, things like defamation or libel, unlawful assembly. Focus instead on things like attempted murder, decoity, banditry, kidnapping, extortion. I mean, these are are serious crimes. Uh, What's interesting to note is that if you look at the last three general election cycles, 2004, 2009, 2014, these proportions are actually going up rather than going down. And if you go down to the state and local levels, you find very similar patterns. So one in three state legislators in India today also is under criminal scrutiny. Um, so this is not only a, 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 a significant number. When you look at where this is happening, uh, if you were to plot this against a map of India, it's happening in virtually all four corners of the country. Now, these are, are, are criminal charges. Uh, I mean, under Indian law, electoral law, if they were actually convicted, they would not be able to stand, I I gather. Now, how many of these uh, people with charges are actually convicted or, I mean, do we know the eventual outcomes of these charges? That's a great question, Devesh. I mean, here's what we know. These are uh, more than just charges. So typically what happens in a criminal case is uh, someone files what's called a first information report. The police gather evidence. The prosecutors then decide whether or not there's a a case to be made. They then present that to a judge. A judge decides to take cognizance of the case and then frames the charges against the accused. What these politicians or these candidates must disclose are only those cases where a judge has taken cognizance or frame the charges already. So it's already passed several hurdles before it it shows up in the data, so to speak. Um, Having said that, these are not convictions, and India is a country where you have the rule of law. So there is a sense of, you know, people are innocent uh, until proven guilty. Unfortunately, due to the weaknesses of the Indian justice system, very few of these cases ever reach their logical conclusion. So a tiny percentage less than 1% of all of these cases that we have data on actually uh, show up as convictions on the affidavits uh, of these criminal politicians. So, I mean, what what one implication of this might be that the politicians will never have an incentive to strengthen the justice system because it serves their interest to keep it weak so that these cases just drag on and on and, of course, the implications of a weak justice system are not just for the politicians. They affect all aspects of life. Might, would, would, would that be valid? I think the weakness of the rule of law presents a dual advantage. Uh, the first advantage is that they can get away with engaging in illegal activities without a high probability that they're going to get caught and, and, and face you know, uh, face actual justice, right? Uh, But the second implication is that uh, they can do things once they're in office that uh, allow them to manipulate the rules in their favor. Um, So they can bend rules in order to 
uh, distribute uh, uh, goods, services to, to, to people who support them. Uh, they can help put pressure on the system, uh, especially, these are police. especially the police, uh, to help their backers. Um, so the rule of law actually provides them uh, a, a sense of immunity or impunity. It also allows them to be seen as people who know how to get things get things done. And I think you 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 pointed out something which is very important, which is that they don't have incentives to ultimately fix what ails the system, because the moment that you come up with a sustainable solution. You're no longer needed as the intermediary because then the courts work fine and the police work fine. And so why do I need a strong man who has a criminal reputation to be my political representative to mediate this relationship between the state and citizen, right? You, so you're sort of – so that, what that means is uh, these politicians are often interested in Band-Aid solutions. Uh, I have a few more, but uh, – you, you referred to the uh, – interplay between the judiciary uh, and, and, and the politicians. Uh, I wonder how, what your view is of the nexus between the business community and uh, the criminalization of Indian politics. Does the influence of business make the situation better or does it make it worse? It's a, it's a great question, Mukul. I mean, I think we have to take a step back and think about, you know, how did the system come about? So it is the case, even if you go back to the earliest general elections, that you had criminals active in politics. However, they were situated on the periphery of politics. So they were often working as a hired gun for a political party. When election time came around, they would help to mobilize turnout or suppress turnout or hand out goodies. So they were very much free agents. Over time, as their clout started to grow, and competition started to intensify, uh, these individuals who had been working for parties said, well, you know, I'm the person doing all the hard work, but I actually have the clout and the resources and authority, and I can just, you know, cut out the politician and actually become the politician. And because elections had become so expensive, uh, but much of the money was coming, uh, what we call in the black, through unaccounted sources, these criminals had an advantage that if you needed someone who was able to move a large amount of money in the political system and knew how to do it undetected, that they were good intermediaries actually for business to funnel money through. Uh, I think it is true today that parties, you know, have a portfolio in a sense of options. Uh, there are some instances where you may want actively directly to recruit business people. So one way which is quite apparent today is through the upper house of Indian parliament where there are no direct elections. These are indirectly elected figures who tend to uh, represent corporate interest or moneyed interest and this becomes a sort of patronage position because many politi many businessmen don't necessarily want to enter the rough and tumble of retail politics and it happens to be the case that there is much less criminality uh, of of this of this sort uh, that I'm talking about serious crime in, in the upper house because most of these criminals their uh, stock and trade is really in the direct connect with the voter so, so Milan, uh, 
when the Supreme Court had the, you know, after the 2003 decision, there was a lot of hope that there will be much greater transparency in the system. And generally, you know, we believe in economics, political science, and there's a general belief that transparency is good for democracy, right? And yet, uh, you know, two things sort of happened after that, which are even more puzzling. Despite this much greater transparency, political parties have continued to nominate these guys, knowing fully well. In fact, it's increased. And even more puzzling, perhaps, is that voters, knowing this, continue to vote like for them. How do we understand these two fundamental, seemingly contradictory impulses of a democracy where ex ante one might have thought, okay, you have transparency, you know who the bad guys are, so you sort of balk. But actually, we seem to have embraced them with gusto. I mean, I think there's a conventional wisdom that's out there from the social sciences that oftentimes voters are electing corrupt criminal, quote-unquote, bad politicians because they simply lack good information about their backgrounds. So if you don't have good information as a voter, you can't really discern, you know, who's a good type and who's a bad type, right? So you're sort of an ignorant voter, in other words, who's making a kind of suboptimal choice. And I think that's been the prevailing wisdom. Uh, What my research shows, in fact, is quite the opposite, that voters armed with information often support candidates with criminal reputations, not in spite of their criminal bona fides, but because of them. Because in a country like India, where the rule of law is weak, where government is not seen as an impartial or effective arbiter to get things done, to deliver basic security, law and order, services, and so on, uh, people are willing to find somebody who will fill in that vacuum. And what the criminals have been able to do is to use their criminality, in a sense, as a signal of their their credibility to do whatever it takes to represent their constituents. Uh, An important piece of this is the fact that India is so socially divided. And in many parts of the country, there are very deep and quite contentious social cleavages, often on identity lines. The identity could be religious. It is often caste-based or ethnic-based. And so they are able to use those differences to say, you need someone like me who is going to do what the state doesn't provide. But I'm going to be purely focused on making sure you, my community, my fellow uh, castmates or uh, co-religionists are protected against, you know, threats from outside. So they have become these Robin Hood figures, essentially, who are not necessarily redistributing from the rich to the poor, but redistributing in favor of their own social group. So, so Milan, if you, that's an, you know, it's a very eloquent, but also very almost disturbing answer, in a sense, of what we think and hope about democracy. But India is not unique. I mean, I mean, I, if we follow the Philippines, I mean, here's a president who openly boasts that he actually killed people, and he, you know, and he's not there playing on social divisions as much, and he's wildly popular. Uh, and if you see the rise of people from 
the U.S. now with Donald Trump uh, and Erdogan in Turkey. This is a much, appears to be a more wider phenomenon where you have people with sort of what you call in your book muscle, openly flaunting muscle. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not about wisdom. It's about, you know, sheer muscle. And voters almost reveling in that. Does that... Uh, make you wonder about the wisdom of the democracy itself? Does it undermine some of our basic faiths in the tenets of the democracy? I think there are two parts to your question. I think the first is, what's the global relevance of, of the story that I tried to tell in this book? And here, I think India is not the only country where you see uh, a symbiosis between crime and politics. Uh, one could look at countries like Brazil. Mexico. One could look at Mexico, Nigeria, Indonesia, the United States, certainly in historical context, if you were to rewind the clock and look at what American politics looked like at the turn of the 20th century, you had corrupt machines that were ethnically motivated, who were doing many of the same types of things that we now see in India. Um, so that's, there's no two ways about that. But I think there's a larger connection which can be made, and this gets to your second point, between sort of strong men politicians who uh, are let's, shall we say, non-traditional political entrepreneurs, right, as someone like Donald Trump. Now, think about what Trump's two motivating ideas were. One is that government doesn't work. It's not working for the little guy in our country. It's not working for the average Joe who's, you know, in the Midwest. Uh, you need somebody who knows how to work the system to get things done for you, and only, remember, I alone can fix it. That was his mantra, right? You need somebody. And remember his response on taxes was, it's not that I did anything illegal. I just knew how to play the game better than everyone else. And I'll play the game for you. The second was using social divisions which exist in American society, but emphasizing them and, bring, and, and turning up the volume, as it were, right? To say, you know... Uh, particularly with uh, non-college-educated whites, to say, you know, this was once your country, and now look what's happened to it, right? Uh, bringing those things which, again, were sort of beneath the surface and, and bringing them above. That's exactly the story that I sort of describe in my, in, my, in my book. Now, is it a failure of democracy? I'm not so sure. It's a failure of institutions to deliver, uh, and in India, in the United States, sort of represent uh, two very different cases. On the one hand, India never had strong institutions to begin with. And if you look at the gap which exists today, and you've written a lot about this between institutions and democracy, there's a huge abyss between the aspirations of the people and what institutions can deliver. America, you can't say the same. We've had a tradition of hundreds of uh, years of strong institutions, but they have now decayed. Uh, look at Congress. 
look at the courts, right? I mean, public trust in these things uh, needs to be renewed, and we haven't done the the hard work of 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 of, of reimagining those things. Um, and so we're in a situation of democratic of institutional decay. But to blame the voters, uh, I think, or democracy is maybe not the right diagnosis, right? I mean, voters are making very rational uh, calculations of saying, look, I need somebody. The status quo doesn't seem to be working. And so therefore, you know, until uh, traditional political parties are able to lift up their game, you know, I have to look out for me. Just one last one and then uh, I'll leave it to close. But ironically, they might be electing the very people who will further undermine weak institutions. So in some ways, uh, it becomes a not ratcheting up, but a ratcheting down. Do you fear that? I do fear that in the following sense, which is, you know, if you go back to the Indian case, uh, as I had mentioned before, uh, we've moved beyond the era where Band-Aid solutions uh, are, are needed. I mean, we really need large structural changes. Um, and so for political parties or politicians who want to demonstrate that they can offer governance without necessarily being self-serving or almost cold and heartless when they interact with the voter, I mean, the onus is now going to be beyond, beyond them. But, you know, criminal politicians uh, have, have, have in some sense tainted the waters that if you're an honest, upright person living in India today, a young person uh, who's interested in public service, you are going to take a seriously hard look uh, at your future before you decide to, to, to plunge in those waters, right? Because you don't want to be associated uh, with, with a profession that's sort of seen as, you know, these are people who are sort of, you know, ruffians or, or people who are... So, so I think it's we are at that position where we might be creating, uh, instead of a, a virtuous cycle, a real negative feedback, a vicious cycle. Okay. So thanks, Devesh. Uh, I just wanted to go back to the international aspect that Devesh brought up earlier. Uh, in your research, did you come across countries that have figured out how to get criminals out of politics? And if so, how did they do it? And what can India learn from their experience? It's a great question, Mukul. Um, you know, I think in some ways, you know, America did do a couple of things right. Uh, I mean, if you think about the period of our history when we had a very corrupt and corrosive politics, this was the Gilded Age, the period after the Civil War, uh, where you had both the rise of crony capitalism, the rise of corrupt machines, the sort of muscular politics that we now see uh, in India. Um, one is you had political leaders who, who fought for uh, things like civil service reforms, cleaning up the spoil system, reducing the discretionary authority uh, of the states, regulating also uh, uh, business so that, you know, they couldn't become so large that they could just capture, you know, uh, 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 power as a, as a sort of monopoly. Now, 
Unfortunately, all of these changes came as a result of big scandals that hurt the economy and that hurt many ordinary people. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, it's a sort of truism in politics that you, you know, a crisis is what leads to reforms. <laughs> unfortunately, India hasn't yet hit that moment of crisis. But if we continue on this present trajectory, you know, at some point, uh, uh, I fear that we, we could see one of those those moments, right? Um, but we also have to keep in mind on the optimistic side that, you know, India's democracy is very young. It's only 70 years. Uh, many other countries have struggled with this and, and found, found way out. There's nothing predetermined or predestined about that. Um, but that's entirely possible that India, too, will work through its current challenges. I have just one last question, and that is to... You began by telling your, your anecdote about how it was the experience with what was happening at the Congress party that inspired you to write the book. Uh, as you did your research, did you find that, uh, although there may be a lot of finger-pointing with parties pointing, you know, blaming one another for who has more criminals, uh, are, are all parties equally culpable, or, or is, do you find there is some... Um, uh, there are some parties that are worse than others when it comes to dealing with criminals in their ranks. Yeah, I mean, I think there were two things which surprised me about uh, about this uh, area. The first is geographically how diverse this phenomenon was. Uh, in as we talk about India, we typically think that it's the poorer, more backward parts of the country, which tend to be concentrated in the north, what we call the Hindi heartland, mm. that have the worst, uh, the most coarsened kind of politics. Uh, in fact, while uh, there is some truth to that, you see crime in relatively well-to-do states like Gujarat and Maharashtra. You see it in many southern states. You see it in a place like West Bengal, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which had been, you know, under communist rule for three decades. So this mm -hmm. is not uh, a, a something that can be narrowly pinpointed to one geography. Neither can it be narrowly pinpointed to one party. So if you look at the parties which have most uh, won the, the the most number of seats over the past ten years, they include the Congress and the BJP, which are the two national parties. They include uh, the communist parties. They include the regional parties uh, uh, of Uttar Pradesh, India's largest state. So this is a grab bag. You have center-right parties. You have center-left parties. You have extreme-left parties. You have regional parties, which are caste, ethnically motivated parties. And if you look at the levels of criminality, both average criminality and serious criminality, there's very little difference among these parties. Um, that this seems to be, when it comes to political parties, an equal opportunity <laughs> phenomenon. So at least we are, India is very democratic in that respect. And highly egalitarian. <laughs> well, uh, on, on that optimistic note, uh, uh, Milan Devish, thank you so much for joining us at Knowledge at Wharton. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.